Good morning. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, Senior Pastor of St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri, and I welcome you to our Pastor's Bible Class. Whether you are joining us here in the St. Louis area on KFUO 850 AM, or literally around the world, if you're joining us online, kfuo.org, I welcome you. It's a privilege to be with you and to study God's Word with you. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we continue to thank you for all the blessings that you shower down upon us each and every day. First of all, for all that you provide for us physically, all that we need to support and sustain us in this body and life. But above all, we thank you for the gift of your precious Son, who came and willingly suffered and died in our place on the cross. Through him, all of our sin is now forgiven, is taken away as far as the east is from the west, according to the psalmist. And we thank you that in him we have everlasting life in your presence. We thank you also for your word, your revealed knowledge to us, and we thank you for this opportunity to study it together. Be with us, we pray, through your Holy Spirit, and guide and bless our study. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as is usually our case in this class, we're going to be looking at the scripture lessons for the following Sunday. So these will be the lessons that will be assigned and read in most Lutheran churches and in some others as well, uh, for Sunday, August 9. So we will be looking at, first of all, Job chapter 38, verses 4 through 18. Next, we'll look at Romans chapter 10, verses 5 through 17. And finally, we'll look at the gospel lesson, Matthew 14, 22 to 33. We'll see, I think, in a, a, immediately a connection between the Old Testament lesson, Job 38, and the Gospel lesson. Uh, Job 38, as we will see, strikes quite a contrast between the great power and majesty and knowledge that God has and compared to the weakness and lack of understanding that Job and his friends have. And then in the Gospel lesson, we'll see again the, the power and the majesty and the identity of Jesus as God himself uh, in all of his majesty and power and glory. And so we will see that connection as the disciples finally are brought to the realization that Jesus truly is the Son of God, and they fall down and worship him. So there's a connection then between the two, uh, the, the divine majesty and power and knowledge as expressed by God in the Old Testament lesson and uh, as is incarnate uh, in Jesus Christ in the gospel lesson as he walks on the water. Let's begin then with Job, and we'll take a look first of all at some of the background for the book of Job before we get to this point. In other words, we'll try to see what has brought us to the point of our text. Uh, Job, way back in the beginning of the book, is described as blameless and upright, uh, as one who feared God and turned away from evil. So a very uh, righteous man, we might say. Uh, and he also was greatly blessed by God. First of all, in terms of his family, uh, he was blessed with seven sons and three daughters. Uh, he also had uh, blessed by God with great possessions, he is uh, said to have had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, uh, the greatest of all the people of the East, he is described. And uh, so we get a picture of a man who was greatly blessed by God. And then uh, finally also we take a look at uh, the fact that there is this 
conversation, I guess you would say, this challenge uh, that Satan uh, places before God and Satan's accusation basically in the exchange that Satan and God have is that the only reason that Job follows God is because God has blessed him with so much, uh, that he has, has put a hedge around him and protected him. And Satan's accusation is that if God were to remove all these blessings, that Job would curse him to his face. In other words, we might say that Job is only a fair-weather follower uh, of God, and it's only because his life uh, has been made so abundant and and so comfortable by God with with all these blessings that God has showered down upon him. And so God sets the parameters then and says that Satan may attack all that Job has, but must not afflict Job in his body physically. And we do see then that uh, Satan does exactly that, and we have uh, Job literally losing everything, uh, except his wife. He, uh, in the course of chapter 1, loses all of those possessions, uh, his children. Uh, and we read verses 20 and 21 as a result of all this. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So just an incredible devastation uh, of his life and of his blessings, and yet Job does not curse God, does not uh, uh, express uh, anger or turn away from God, uh, reject God, uh, just the opposite. So then Satan, not uh, uh, satisfied with that, um, is the accuser again, and accuses, uh, throws another accusation at God, saying that uh, if Job is afflicted physically, bodily, that he would curse God to his face. God again sets the parameters and allows Satan to afflict Job physically, but Satan must spare Job's life. He cannot, he's not allowed to uh, take his life. And then Satan afflicts Job with sores from the sole of his foot to the top of his head, uh, the scriptures say. And so Job is just a pretty pitiful sight uh, when all is said and done. Uh, He simply sits on the ground, takes a piece of broken pottery, and scrapes himself um, with sitting in ashes. So he has been reduced, I guess you would say, to nothing more than a pitiful sight, now even physically with sores all over his body. Uh, just reading this uh, at verse 9 of chapter 2, Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. <laughs> so uh, not very strong uh, spousal support, uh, we might say there. Um, but he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Still we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this Job did not sin with his lips. So again, in spite of the incredible um, destruction and devastation in his life, even to the point of being afflicted himself physically, Job does not curse God, does not sin. Then we have uh, really about 36 chapters of Job and his three friends um, 
philosophizing, I guess you would say, going back and forth um, in terms of discussing good and evil and good things and bad things in life and uh, the reasons for them and so on. Uh, it's, it's a long read. And finally, in verse 38, God kind of gives Job a bit of a dressing down here. Um, these guys are talking as if they know so much and understand so much, and really they understand nothing. And God here in chapter 38 um, really sets up a contrast, as I indicated earlier, between the power and knowledge and majesty and understanding of God and the weakness and the uh, smallness, we might say, of man and his understanding, and in particular here, of uh, dressing it very personally, uh, in a way, to Job. So, let's start with, uh, we're in chapter 38 of Job, starting with verse 4, and there's a series of uh, questions here, first of all, where God uses the imagery of building a house to describe his creation of the world. Let's just read 4 through 6, and then talk about it. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? So going back, these are, of course, a series of rhetorical questions. Um, God does come to him here and speaks to him uh, in a whirlwind. And actually, Job had requested earlier that God would speak to him. Um, so we, he rattles off a series of questions that demonstrate his great knowledge and power here to Job, and again, Job's own lack of same. Um, tell, you know, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And uh, Job, of course, can only answer with silence. Uh, he was nowhere to be found, of course, and has no understanding of how the foundation of the earth was laid. Uh, who determined its measurements? And, of course, we know that would be God himself, the one who is speaking. Uh, surely you know, a kind of a sarcastic, um, you know, if you know so much, surely you know that. Or who stretched the line upon it? Think of a, uh, a plumb line or a, uh, a line that is drawn to, to keep the building in a straight line as it goes up. Um, and, uh, who, or what were, on what were its bases sunk? The idea, again, is that all is under God's control, and God knows all, for it is God who did all of these things. And again, the implication is, Job, if you think you know so much, you and your buddies, uh, surely you can answer these simple questions. And of course, he cannot. Going on verse 7, When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Usually, uh, scholars have taken this as a reference to the angels um, who were rejoicing with joy at the magnificent creation. Uh, we don't have an account of that, you know, to be frank. Uh, in the creation account, we don't have that detail. But this is usually thought uh, referring to the creation itself, of course, is what we're talking about here. And uh, the sons of God shouted for joy, the morning stars sang together. The morning star, of course, um, is a very prominent uh, reference in Revelation 22, verse 16, to Jesus Christ himself, uh, described as the morning star. Uh, verse uh, 8 now, Or who shut in the sea with doors, 
when it burst out from the womb. So we have here the picture of the creation of the sea as using the imagery of a woman giving birth. And again, the rhetorical answer, the understood answer here, is that God did this. God uh, created the parameters, you might say, for the sea. And uh, kind of this picture of shutting it in or containing it with doors when it came bursting forth from the womb or when it was created. Uh, next, when I, verse 9, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band. Well, here you have the imagery of God creating uh, clothing uh, for the, the sea, uh, and we could say by extension uh, the world itself. Clouds are spoken of as a garment, and thick darkness as a swaddling band. We think of the uh, swaddling clothes that new uh, infants were, were wrapped in, in particular Jesus, the reference to swaddling claws. Um, God is using that imagery here to talk about his mighty creation. Verse 10, and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors. Again, God prescribing the limits for the earth, for the sea, for his creation. And notice here he speaks of, uh, I should have referenced in verse 9, uh, notice the use of I here. So we've stopped with the rhetorical questions that Job can only answer silent with his silence. God is here declaring what he did. Verse uh, 11, and said, Thus far shall you come, and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Again, God determining the boundaries and the limits, the, the almighty control uh, that God has over his creation and over all things that he has created. Verse 12, Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? <laughs> Here's again a rhetorical question, which again is obviously no. Uh, Job has not commanded the morning to begin, in other words. Um, and here, here we reference that God also commands not just the creation on earth, but all the celestial bodies as well. Uh, he, he is in command of it all, in control of it all. Um, verse uh, 13, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it. And the skirts of the earth, uh, again, scholar, a lot of scholars think this is a reference to the dusk and the dawn uh, being portrayed as folds on a blanket or a tablecloth. Uh, again, a way of picturing God lifting up the, the uh, blanket or the, or the uh, uh, apron, so to speak, to reveal the light. Another way of referring to light and darkness that, again, day and night that are in God's control. Verse 14, it is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. Um, the clay under the seal, uh, note how you know clay changes its form, changes its shape when it is underneath a seal, or when a seal is applied to it and pressed down. It conforms to the, um, the shape and the design of the seal, whatever the seal is. Same again with the earth. When the sun comes up, it, it rises and the features of the earth become clear, become known, they appear. And there's a change that takes place there. And again, God in control of all this. Verse 15, from the wicked their light is withheld and their uplifted arm broken. And God, the uplifted arm would be when 
the wicked raise their arm in violence or, or threaten, uh, God thwarts that. He puts an end to that. Um, and from the wicked, their light is withheld, the first part of verse 15. And, of course, the wicked are in darkness. When it comes to darkness and light, uh, God is only the God of light, not the God of evil and darkness. Verse, uh, verse 16 have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? And again, the rhetorical no. But yet, just stop and think how God knows even the contours of the deepest parts of the ocean floor, um, things, that, places that man has never been, can never be, yet God knows it full well. Um, walked the recesses of the deep. I just think of that, God traversing even the lowest points in his created earth. Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Um, you know, earlier I was reading that Job and his friend Zophar had talked about death and the place of the dead uh, as though they were authorities over it. Um, I skipped over verse 17. Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? And as I said, uh, Job and Zophar had talked about this earlier, and it talked as though they were authorities on the subject. Uh, we won't read it here, but you can look at Job 7, verse 9, 11, verse 8, and 26, uh, verses 5 and 6. And, of course, God is the authority uh, over life and death. He knows it all. And uh, the gates of death are known to him. Uh, uh, we can think of the gates of death also known to his son uh, as a result of his son's great love for you and for all people uh, that he willingly experienced the gates of death uh, on our behalf. Um, the ending here, declare, it, declare if you know all this. And of course, Job can only... Um, be in silence because he knows none of it. So again, uh, we think of the summarizing here the great contrast between the knowledge and the great understanding that God has of all this and of all of life, all of death. There is nothing about which uh, he is ignorant compared to Job and his buddies. We could extrapolate beyond Job and his friends, of course, and think of modern-day man, uh, how sophisticated we uh, think we are, uh, how arrogant we can become at times with things that we think we know full well. And yet there are other times in life when we realize painfully how little we do know, uh, how little understanding we have of even some very basic things that happen day in and day out. God, in his great love and, and great grace, has revealed so much to us about the world, about his creation, and yet at times uh, we as, as people, again, can be so arrogant as if we know it all. And it's good for us to be put in our place and realize that next to God we know painfully little. That's why when we um, are reading the scriptures or have issues in life, we silence our reason. In other words, when reason 
and the scriptures come into what would seem to be a conflict or a contradiction, uh, our, our reason bows to the authority of scripture and God's authority in our lives. We use our reason, of course, in the Christian faith. We use our intellect in the Christian faith, but always in what we call a ministerial sense, in service to God and in service to the Word. And as I say, when reason and the scriptures uh, seem to be in conflict, uh, we bow to the scriptures and do not assert that we know better or we have a better understanding, just the opposite. So, uh, we'll leave Job behind now and move on to the epistle lesson. And we're continuing uh, in the book of Romans, this time now Romans chapter 10, verses 5 through 17. And I want to read just the first section for you, and then we'll come back and talk about it. We're going to start at verse 5 of Romans 10. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments will live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let's stop there for a moment. Go back to verse 5. This writing about the law, the righteousness based on the law that Moses did, uh, saying that basically the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Uh, One verse we could look at that uh, perhaps is the one that that Paul is referring to here would be uh, Leviticus chapter 18, and we want to look at verse 5 where Moses writes here, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. We'll talk a little bit about this. Uh, First of all, it is a correct statement to say that if someone could live completely and perfectly the law, uh, they would live. The problem, of course, is that since the fall of Adam and Eve, no one can, except Christ, of course, and he did that perfectly, uh, tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. But Moses is here also indicating that they have to live by the law. In other words, the law is what they are relying on. It's what they're, they're living by, so to speak, uh, for their own righteousness. And, of course, this is so completely impossible. It is futile to be thinking that you are going to be righteous uh, as a result of the observing of the law. Uh, there is simply uh, cannot happen. And so uh, Moses writes that it is true, uh, as we saw in Leviticus 18.5. But now there's a contrast Paul sets up, starting in verse 6. But the righteousness based on faith. And here Paul kind of personifies this righteousness and says that it is saying something. Um, and so this righteousness, just for a moment again, is the righteousness that God lays upon us by his grace strictly through faith in Jesus Christ. It is an, what is called an alien righteousness to us because 
it is not a righteousness that we by our nature possess, but rather God lays it on us. He gives it to us. In our baptism, for example, we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And there is such a beautiful imagery that takes place, at least here at St. Paul's and in many other churches I, I know as well, that when a funeral takes place, there is the casket and it is draped with a funeral, what's called a funeral pall, P-A-H-L. It is a white uh, garment or a, a white um, a linen covering that goes over the casket, white symbolizing, uh, standing for purity and blamelessness and righteousness. And that is a beautiful way of depicting that the person whose soul has gone to be with the Lord, again, was clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And again, it is nothing that we do, nothing that we achieve. It is given to us freely by our gracious God. So, the righteousness based on faith says, Paul says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. Uh, the, the gist of this is that we do not have to go looking for Christ. We do not have to go on a pilgrimage uh, to find him, go, going and searching for him. Um, he is, we do not have to go ascending into heaven to bring him down, or descending into the abyss, Paul says, that to bring him up from the dead. But what does it say? Namely, the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. Um, this is the word of faith that we proclaim. We won't look at it now, um, but this is kind of, Paul is kind of doing a contrast here to what Moses did in chapter 30, of Deuteronomy in speaking about the law, not about the righteousness that comes by faith, but about the law. Maybe I'll just read for you. This is Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 through 14. And notice the similarity here that, that exists between these two. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart, so that you can do it. So Paul, it seems here, is contrasting what Moses wrote about the law with what is the righteousness of faith. Not through the law, but the righteousness based on faith. And so we uh, are truly blessed, we should stop and, and consider here, we are truly blessed that the, the word is near us. Uh, it is in our mouth and in our heart by the grace of God. We can think about this on several levels. First of all, that in this day and age, I was just saying this in a confirmation class uh, last week, that we are so blessed to have the word of God available in so many different uh, ways. Uh, not only is there the printed uh, on paper scriptures, we also have, uh, I for example on my phone have a couple of different apps that have the Bible, uh, in different, even in different uh, versions. Um, and there are, uh, thirdly, there are websites uh, 
there's one in particular that I like to utilize called Bible Gateway, where there are uh, any number of different translations, even in foreign languages. Um, and there are all kinds of software programs that are available uh, for the study of the scriptures. Uh, we are truly blessed to have the, the scriptures available to us so near us, uh, to quote Paul, uh, each and every day. And then so blessed by God that this word is internalized in us through faith as well. It is in our mouth and in our heart. That is the word of faith. This word of faith uh, is kind of an interesting phrase because it's both the content of our faith and, of course, it's the word that the Holy Spirit uses to create faith. So it is both that which creates faith and the content of what is believed at the same time. Um, it says now in verse 9, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Um, there's an interesting pattern that takes place here. Uh, talking in verse 9, confessing, believing, being saved, and then in verse 10, again, believing and confessing with the mouth and being saved kind of an interesting pattern that Paul uh, almost reverses uh, from verses nine to ver verse 9 to verse 10. Um, this, of course, is the heart and core of the gospel, and Paul here connects what is confessed with the mouth to what is believed in the heart. There's an inseparable connection uh, between the two. Um, the, the word is near you, uh, it's, it's in your mouth and in your heart, it's the word of faith, and so there is this inseparable link that takes place. Um, Paul says here in verse 9, if you believe with your, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Now those words, Jesus is Lord, we think, actually were an early Christian creed, just a three-word creed or statement of belief concerning Jesus, and it is a significant statement of faith. We are in effect, or the Christians were, and we are in effect here saying that Jesus is God. He is divine. That word used for Lord is the word used in the Old Testament, um, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. It is the word that is used for Yahweh. And it is used, uh, I, I should have looked it up how many times it is used, of course, in the Old Testament. God's personal name the uh, from uh, Exodus 3.14, I am who I am. And uh, by saying these words, Christians are saying that Jesus is Yahweh. He is God. And uh, so as I say, it was a significant statement. And believe, Paul says in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, physical, bodily resurrection, you will be saved. Uh, we shouldn't think of salvation, however, as something that we don't possess yet and will someday. But Paul, you're most likely referencing the last day when we too will be raised, just as Christ was raised from the dead. And the full, uh, uh, full fruition of that uh, happening on the day when Christ does return and we are bodily raised. Um, Verse 10, with heart one believes and is justified. Now, that word for justified, notice it is a one-time act. 
It is a state we live in through faith. This is nothing that we conjure up from inside of us, nothing that uh, we work to achieve. It is, again, given to us. It is um, a legal term, a forensic term, uh, to be pronounced righteous, to be pronounced not guilty, we should say. And uh, with the mouth one confessed and is saved. Going on, verse 11. For the scripture says, and here uh, Paul is quoting Isaiah 28:16. The scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And that belief in Isaiah 28:16 was, of course, in God and his promises. And we will not be put to shame. We will be vindicated, in other words, that... Um, uh, we, we who are, uh, are pronounced righteous in the sight of God will not be put to shame. Notice the universality here, that it's everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Uh, verse 12, For there is no distinction, Paul says here, between Jew or Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Notice here, Paul does away with any kind of human distinction or division that in Christ, all of those distinctions fall by the wayside. I'm reminded here, and we can hear the echo, really, of Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 and 28. And uh, let me read that for you for just a second. Notice the similarity. There is neither, um, I'm sorry, verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so, again, these distinctions that are human distinctions fall away. Uh, The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Notice again the universality of God's blessings and the bestowing of his blessings. Verse 13, notice the universality uh, continues. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. A quote from Joel 2, verse 32. And, of course, calling on the name of the Lord uh, implies or understands faith uh, in the heart and the confession with the lips that we just have been talking about. Now, in this next section verses 14 uh, through the end of the text, through 17, Paul draws a connection here between the calling on uh, on God, uh, faith in Jesus, and how that comes about. He, he draws the connection, or note, notes the connection, between the Word of God and faith and the proclamation of the Word. So let's, let's read through this and you'll see what I mean. Verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And, of course, that's a rhetorical question. Uh, If they don't believe in him, how are they going to call upon God? Next question, and how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? So they haven't believed, and how can they believe, Paul says, if they've never heard of him? So, and, and finally, and how are they to hear with someone without someone preaching, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? Notice here, Paul operates here, starting at verse 14, in sort of reverse chronological order 
with the way things normally would go. He starts off with people calling on God, then goes to people believing in God, then people hearing about God, then to people preaching about God so that he can be heard, and then the preachers being sent. So it's exactly the reverse chronological order of the way things would happen. Um, you know, first the person would be sent, then they would preach, then they would people would hear about it, then they would believe, and then they would call on God. Notice here the important, critical connection between the Word of God and faith. It is God working through his means, in this case the Word, to create and sustain faith. And it is the Holy Spirit's work, of course, with in and through the Word of God to call sinners to faith. Uh, as Luther does it so well in his explanation of the third article of the Creed, uh, you'll recall how he writes, I believe that I cannot on my own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him, but the Holy Ghost has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the one true faith. So it is just, an, again, uh, a declaration of the very same thing, the connection between um, these two things, uh, and the necessity of the proclamation of the word of God, the necessity of those being sent to preach and teach the word so that God might work through his word. Maybe just a little aside here. Uh, I was reading in a commentary that uh, the, the, you, you wonder to yourself, how did the church in Rome actually begin? How did the Christian church in Rome actually begin? Many scholars believe it was at the day of Pentecost when specifically in Acts 2, it talks about visitors from Rome being present and hearing Peter's sermon. Another case where the word uh, was used by God to create and sustain faith. And then those visitors from Rome going back and telling the word, proclaiming, preaching the word, so that again faith was created there. Just a little aside, but uh, it was kind of, it's an interesting concept um, to, to, to think about. Uh, so again, the connection, this is why, of course, in our churches, uh, it is the word of God that is proclaimed. It is not the preacher getting up and talking about his, uh, his understanding of uh, economics and politics and uh, all the other disciplines uh, in life, giving his opinions, his thoughts, and his wisdom. It is the word of God that is to be proclaimed, and that's uh, what we always do. Uh, when we are uh, in worship together. It is that word that creates and sustains faith. Now, a little contrast here. Verse, uh, starting in the middle of verse 15, 15b, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Um, we really think here that this is, well, it's a quote, first of all, from Isaiah 52, verse 7, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. We think this was probably a reference to the messengers who brought the good news to God's people of their release from captivity in Babylon. That it's referencing that, first of all, that it's a reference to the joy uh, that accompanied that proclamation of that uh, freedom and that release from captivity in Babylon. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring that good news. But, of course, 
Paul, speaking about the righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus Christ, speaks about those who proclaim, preach, and teach the word of God. Um, it's certainly those included, the apostles who were sent out. That's what that, in verse uh, 15, the word sent is the, comes from the Greek word apostello, from which we get apostle, the one who is sent out, in this case with authority by Christ. Um, includes also the teaching of the apostles, of course, uh, in the New Testament. We also have today pastors uh, who are um, called and, in a sense, sent uh, with uh, divine authority and a divinely uh, authorized office to do just that, to preach and teach the Word of God. But we think even beyond that, certainly, that we think of the, the uh, proclamation of the gospel, the telling of the gospel so that people can hear it um, in everyday situations by all kinds of people who are used by God uh, to proclaim the wonderful good news of the gospel, that in Christ there is forgiveness and in Christ there is life. And that certainly includes each and every one of us. Uh, then verse 16, a bit of a contrast here, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord who has believed what he has heard from us. And that's a quote from Isaiah 53 verse 1. Uh, the very next chapter in Isaiah from the previous quote, uh, showing, I think here, how quickly uh, even God's people can uh, uh, fall into unbelief and not believe what has been proclaimed to them. And this is a good point to say that when God works through means, like the Word of God, he can be rejected, he can be completely resisted, and does not force people to believe. And we have all seen how um, two people can hear the very same proclamation uh, concerning sin and grace and Christ, and one believe and one not believe. Uh, if the person does not believe, uh, we of course say it is their fault, it is their rejection of God's gracious offer of forgiveness, it is not the fault of the Word of God, it certainly is not the fault of God himself who desires that all be saved, and come to the knowledge of the truth. The person who believes, however, we say is not their doing, it is all God's doing, that we cannot, again, by our own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ our Lord or come to him. It is all God's doing. And here Isaiah is quoting the fact that people can reject and can uh, resist the working of the Holy Spirit. And finally, verse 17, the capstone verse here, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Um, you know, this, this message about Christ, the word of Christ, uh, again, is not something we conjure up from inside of ourselves. It's not something that uh, God, uh, you know, booms down from heaven to us. It's the message that comes through, uh, to us through the ones God sends into our lives to preach and teach the word. Um, pastors, uh, teachers, and, and really everyone who uh, proclaims this wonderful message. And notice here, too, the focus is on the message. The focus is on the Word and the hearing of the Word and how critical, how important that is. Uh, just a quick aside that uh, I've always had a very, very firm belief that at weddings, uh, certainly at funerals, uh, that we preach Christ and Christ crucified and risen from the dead. Uh, I always think to myself, in particular at weddings, 
uh, where there might be some people there merely out of courtesy to the family or respect for the family and friendship and so on with the family. I often think to myself, how many people sitting there, uh, for them, this might be the last opportunity they will have in their lifetime, in their earthly life, to hear about this wonderful message. So it's always been my firm belief that we don't shy away uh, from preaching Christ uh, at weddings, certainly at funerals where the same might be the case. Um, you can tell, believe me as a pastor, when you're sitting up there, uh, you can tell uh, just by watching people uh, how many people regularly worship God and others who uh, just are like a fish out of water, so to speak, and uh, do not follow along, have no concept of what is going on. And again, you have life and death right there in front of you at a funeral. And I never shy away from preaching again the very basics about Christ and forgiveness through him. And on the other hand, sin and death as a result of sin. So just a little aside here, but we certainly see that in the text as well, that, that connection and importance placed upon the word and faith. Well, let's go on to the gospel lesson, a great dramatic gospel lesson, Jesus walking on the water out to his disciples. And this is in Matthew 14. And remember, I talked about the connection here with uh, the Old Testament lesson where God speaks of his great power and majesty and might. And here Jesus gives us a demonstration of that very fact as he walks on the water out to his disciples. Uh, we were just talking in Romans uh, about Jesus is Lord, and here is a great demonstration of it. Verse 22, then, of Matthew 14. Immediately, well, immediately after what? Uh, Jesus has just fed the 5,000 men, and who knows how many women and children, uh, which is five loaves of bread and two fish, and all were satisfied, remember, and there were 12 baskets full of uh, uh, extra food that remained, and the disciples picked that up. Uh, this was the gospel lesson uh, previous week. And here, so it's immediately after that, Jesus, he made the disciples get into the boat. This would be the boat on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Notice Jesus makes the disciples do this. It is he, it is Jesus, who is orchestrating uh, what is going to follow. He clearly is in control here and is setting things up for what is going to occur. Uh, so he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. Uh, they're actually going to the northwest shore now, uh, to the plain of Gennesaret, and uh, he is going to uh, dismiss the crowds also here, uh, Matthew says in, in, uh, chapter, in uh, verse 22. And um, so again, he's dismissed the crowds, he has sent the disciples away, and notice he does not go with them. And after he dismissed the crowds, I'm in verse 23, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Um, mountain might be an exaggeration here. Uh, it probably would be hills. Uh, I guess you would certainly refer to them as mountains. Um, if you've been to the Sea of Galilee, you know that there are uh, what I would call hills anyway uh, around the perimeter of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, that's why when storms come up, they can often get quite violent because it's like the wind rushing around in a, like in a bowl. Uh, you're in a kind of almost like a bowl. And uh, the wind and the waves can become quite strong. Now, uh, they're out there, and verse 24, 
Jesus is up on the mountain, and the disciples are out there on the, on the lake, uh, on the Sea of Galilee, verse 24. But the boat, by this time, was a long way from the land. Uh, John 6.19 reports that they were approximately three to four miles uh, out in the Sea of Galilee. Uh, it goes on, they were a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. So they're out there, and they've got this storm occurring. But I want to point out here something that Dr. Jeffrey Gibbs, in his excellent commentary series on Matthew, points out, that unlike Matthew 8, where the disciples are fearful because of the storm, that the wind and the, you know, the waves were crashing over the boat, and they were terrified they were going to die, that's not the source of the fear here in this incident. Uh, it doesn't say that they were afraid. They were just, of course, frustrated, certainly, because they're going against the wind. They're having a tough time out there. But notice we haven't heard a word about them being afraid yet. Verse 25. And in the fourth watch, which would be about between 3 and 6 a.m., so it is dark out there, um, between, uh, and in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, he being Jesus, of course. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. So here's the first time we hear of them being afraid. In fact, being terrified, the source or the cause of them being terrified is seeing Jesus walking on the sea. Uh, and, and they said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. So again, the cause of the fear is seeing this being walking out there on the water, <laughs> which you do not see, uh, you, you do not uh, uh, witness uh, at all. And they're wondering, of course, um, is, this, is this being going to harm us? Uh, we're three to four miles out here in the water. It's pitch black. Uh, what's going to happen to us? Um, so then in verse 27, notice here, Jesus immediately, but immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. So Jesus immediately assures them with his presence. And as soon as he identifies himself, uh, they, their fear and their terror, uh, should subside. But notice it's not enough for Peter. Uh, that, that's not enough. Uh, verse 28, And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out to you on the water. So Peter still is not convinced it would appear. And he has this strange request, a, sort of a bizarre request. Command me to come out to you on the water. Jesus has a one-word response in verse 29, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. So he is... You get the impression here uh, that he is right next to Jesus at this point. Uh, later on, we'll see how Jesus is able to just reach out to him. So he has, uh, he has been uh, empowered uh, to do exactly what he has asked to do, and Jesus has proven that to him. Uh, it's kind of, you know, a little parallel to Thomas's demand, you know, unless I see the nail prints in his hands and put my hand in his side, I will not believe you know, Lord, if it is you, tell me to come out to you here. And Jesus obliged Thomas just like he obliges Peter here and condescends to, to granting his request. 
Uh, but verse 30, but when he saw the wind, notice he takes his eyes off Jesus here. He saw the wind, he was afraid, Peter was, and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And verse 31, again, immediately, this is the second time now, immediately Jesus comes this time to Peter's aid. Jesus reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? You know, this is a, I would say, a fairly strong rebuke here of Peter by Jesus. I don't know what, you know, Jesus is not saying here, he doesn't, he doesn't compliment Peter. Well, Peter, that was a great try, and, uh, you know, good for you for stepping out of the boat in the first place. Um, it's a fairly mild uh, to strong rebuke here. Um, oh, you of little faith, that literally is little faith, why did you doubt? Um, and that's probably saying enough, but notice here, well, let's finish up first, and then we'll have some comments. And when they got into the boat, namely Peter and Jesus, the wind ceased. Uh, I think usually understood here that um, Jesus calmed it. Although I, I must admit it does not say that, but there is a seemingly a parallel uh, happening here of them getting into the boat and the wind ceasing. Uh, verse 33, And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Um, those in the boat, of course, being the disciples, you could assume, I guess, that they are bowing down in reverence before him uh, as they should in the presence of God. Um, you know, a couple things here we look at. Uh, first of all, Peter is the one who really doubted uh, twice here. Um, he doubted, you know, if it is you, uh, command me to come out. And then he, when he's out on the water, seems to doubt again and begins to sink. And, in fact, Jesus addresses him of uh, you of little faith. But notice here, again, we see in Jesus the kindness, the long-suffering, the uh, compassion of this master for his disciples and how comforting that is for us as well. Uh, people at times of little faith ourselves, uh, people of doubt at times ourselves. Will our master, will Jesus um, uh, let us sink, let us be lost? No. Um, it, even those of weak or little faith, uh, he reaches out and saves. Um, you know, Jesus had previously, as I mentioned, in Matthew 8, calmed the storm. And there, the disciples, it's interesting, their reaction there was, uh, what sort of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? But this time, there seems to be no doubt now as to who he is. Uh, they say, truly, you are the Son of God. And he has, in what he did here, clearly revealed to them uh, that he is no mere man but that he is Lord, as we were talking again in, in a Roman study. Uh, he truly is the God. Can he save? Yes. Does he save? Yes. Because of his great love and compassion. And what uplifting words those are for us as we think about uh, ourselves, our lack of faith at times, uh, our being led by temptation into sin, and yet, there is Jesus, as he was for Peter, as he was for Thomas. There he is, um, obliging us, and with his grace and with his mercy, there each and every day. Um, what, a, what a great uplifting message it is. 
Let's close then at this point with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Thank you very much for joining us today. Have a great week.